Welcome to the moment that changed everything, where we interview notable creative people to gain insights into how they got started and learn more about the moments that shaped them and their careers. Today, we sit down with Aaron Blasky, TEDx speaker, digital marketing instructor, and director of marketing at Fellow, an app that helps managers better organize teams and their work. Aaron is incredibly industrious. She started her own company at age 21, helping launch businesses for Major League Baseball players, Emmy-nominated actors, and multiple other six-figure companies. This is not a time to go for the hard sell. This is a perfect time to sort of think about the foundational elements of, of your business, your brand, etc. There's things that you can do now that will reap rewards later. Today, we talk about her passion for building brands from the ground up, how starting a new job during a pandemic has gone, the behind the scenes of talking at a TED conference, and how being an entrepreneur can look cool from the outside, but inside, it's a whole other story. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. We're so glad to have you on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited. Yeah, you know what? Like, I, you know, with as with every guest, I try to try to learn as much as I can. And um, you know, when I came across your LinkedIn bio, honestly, I read it and I was like, "This is how a LinkedIn bio should be should oh. be written." Because I mean, you see a lot of general kind of talk in it, and yours yours actually told a story, which I know is one of the underpinnings of uh, of uh, what you talk to people about and how important it yeah. is. Yeah. Even even if your did even if your bio did make me feel like a bit of an underachiever. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, but um, but listen, why don't you know we're going to talk about a few things today, um, and but why don't we start with your new post at uh, at Fellow? So tell us what was it like to start a new job and then uh, be hit with a global pandemic almost right out of the gate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as anyone could probably attest, it's definitely an interesting process. I mean, starting a, a new job in general is an interesting process. There's a lot that goes along with that. Um, and we can get into this later. But I mean, the fact that I you know, ran my own company for 15 years and took a job in general um, has been an interesting uh, path uh, you know, to sort of walk down. Um, but here's the thing, like Fellow, um, so it's actually a, a tool that's perfect for, for remote companies. Um, Non-remote companies use us too, but it's, a, it's a, like a fantastic tool for people that are looking to meet with their teams and, and just have more productive meetings. Uh, so it was actually both like a blessing and, um, and I actually wouldn't say it was a curse. Like I was going to say it's a blessing and a curse, but it actually wasn't. Um, it was a blessing to start it with a company that was so perfectly positioned for something like this without even realizing it. So I had probably, I, I want to say I had about a month um, in the office uh, before, you know, the pandemic hit. And, um, but because I had worked from home for 15 years, like this was old hat for me. Like I, I got back into my home office and I was like, this is, this feels really similar. Um, so I, I would say, you know, it has its challenges, uh, especially in terms of like building relationships with team and things like that. Um, but we're really lucky, like the, you know, we've got Slack and Zoom and Hangouts and everything else. Like the world is much more connected today, um, you know, than if it were, I don't know, 10 years ago, it may have, may have been a bit more challenging, but um, so far it's good. I'm having fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think, uh, I think you might've mentioned this on a, on another podcast that you were on, but um I think for those of us who weren't used to working remotely now have gotten a taste of it. Um, and even some of us, you know, myself included, um, I was a bit of a naysayer in terms of, you know, FaceTime with, with people and maintaining relationships while be, while working remotely. 
And here we are into our whatever this is, eight, eight nine weeks of, of uh, being inside our homes and working. And, and uh, clearly it works. Um, you can get work done. And, and in many cases, it's, it's optimal. But as you said in your podcast, there's a difference between being someone who works remotely when things are all back to normal or whatever the new normal will be. So tell us about tell us about that. I mean, I think many of us are like we envision that, oh, we're going to drag some of this stuff that we're experiencing now and we're going to utilize it as best as possible in the new normal when that arises. But tell us how you see it, because you're used to doing all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, so for me, um, I've been pretty fortunate. Uh, so I do have a daughter who's home with me right now. Um, she's nine. So she's at that perfect age where, you know, she's independent enough to get through the day. Um, but also, you know, not, she's not so far into her studies, for example, um, where it's really going to be detrimental. So, you know, I definitely have that added challenge right now with her being here. I would say that um, that definitely makes a difference. It makes it a lot different than when I, when, you know, when, when I was dro like dropping her off at school and then coming back home and having the full house to myself and being able to, to work and be productive. Um, but that said, like it didn't actually take me very long to uh, sort of, you know, fall into new patterns. Um, you know, is she having a bit more screen time than, um, you know, I would like? Probably. Um, is she getting a little less, you know, a dedicated school time? Absolutely. Uh, but at the same time, like, I, I don't know. It, it's just, I think you have to go into these situations and adapt. Um, the way that I see it going moving forward, and I know even for, you know, for many companies, everyone's talking about like whether or not we even go back to offices, like if, mm -hmm. if they're even required for a lot of companies. Um, and I think for me, like, I would love to stay uh, having some sort of a blended working, um, you know, experience where like I spend some of the time in the office, but I also get to spend a lot more time here. Um, you know, hopefully my daughter's back to school at some point so I can drop her off, come back home and, and work. But for me, this is, this is, you know, it's, it's, um, it's not only easy, but it's actually in many cases welcome. Um, I love deep work. I love focus and flow. Um, I love being able to just put my head down and do those things. And in an office, it's a lot harder to do that. You know, like you're constantly like being tapped on the shoulder and things like that. Um, so I think you'll see companies, you know, maybe go to a blended approach. Um, maybe they'll uh, realize that, um, you know, they don't need their team in the office every day. Maybe it's just some, some days. Um, but for me personally, like I'm, I'm really liking it. <laughs> yeah. Not just I miss my coworkers, but I really like being working from home. <laughs> I think one of the, I mean, one of just a side note quickly on, on that, on this subject is that I think people who aren't used to it um, or who watch it, um, who watch it and might be skeptical, have some kind of preconceived notions about working from home. What I've realized is like, uh, you have to be available. Like you can't just like take off for a couple of hours and go dark or else no. it's just not going to work. And it just made me think that as long as you are uh, committed to working this way that it actually works well. I know, I know there's that, and I forget with what the author is, but you know, it was for the master classes online. And she says, you know, the, the, the greatest, the greatest enemy in, in, in writing anyway is, is, um, is not your ability. It's interruption. And you make a good point, you know, like I find things to be quite a lot more, uh, productive, because if you can just kind of focus on one thing, uh, you take something that if you're interrupted constantly is going to take much longer. So um, 
so I, for one, I, I welcome it. So I think it's going to be great. Good. You Listen, can you can join the the bandwagon too. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to tell everybody to do this. You know, cool. I think just it's promote a, it. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think there's a lot of people who who uh, who think focus is probably the most important thing when it comes to making something successful. But when I look at your resume and I look at what you're doing, I see a lot of different things. Do you think that's just a personality thing or is there something to be said for being uh, hyper focused on a single thing to make it a success? Yeah, you know, it's it's, in, it's a, that's a great question. And it's something that I've I've explored, I would say, my whole career. I've always been a very multi-passionate person. Um, I've always loved many things at once. Um, you know, for example, uh, 10 years ago, you would have found me running a company I had my own YouTube channel um, that was more like lifestyle focused. I had a gaming YouTube channel because many people don't realize that I'm also like a huge, you know, video gamer. Um, and so I think, I think it's it, like, it's exciting and it's, it's inspiring and, and keeps you feeling creative and, and motivated when you do have multiple passions. Um, it can be though a little chaotic at times <laughs> to do that. And I think what I've learned over the years, um, because I wasn't always great at this, I think what I've learned is that it's really great if you can find that niche, double down and stay hyper-focused, you'll likely go farther, faster, and you'll likely um, be able to go deeper into that. Meaning like if I was to focus on, let's say um, starting a company and, and servicing just one type of client, um, that's going to make it a lot easier for me to find those people and service them and you know create products and offerings and whatever that suit them. If I'm a little bit more scattered, um, the benefit to that is that I'm gonna learn a lot more. Meaning like I'm gonna be able to dive into like different industries and different areas of expertise. And I think there's some value there as well. So for me personally, when you're looking at my LinkedIn profile, the reason it looks so chaotic. Um, so without going into like the really long story, sure. uh, when I was self-employed, I started my company at 21. Um, I started it, it was an online company. My first clients were actually, one. my very first client was a startup in Silicon Valley. Um, I started working with him and then it sort of led to all these referrals and I was sort of bouncing around and I spent 14 years working with a wide range of, of clients, um, people that are, you know, like I'm talking like an MLB player, uh, a guy on the show, Dexter, like my clients were random um, and all over the place. And I learned a lot, like that was very beneficial. Um, but when I decided to go back and take a job and I moved into um, working at a startup accelerator before, just before coming to fellow, um, what I realized then was that, yes, I had this really wide swath of experience, but I hadn't gone deep on any one thing. And therefore it kind of left me with like a network that was a little bit more scattered, um, experience that was a bit more scattered. And uh, when I joined the accelerator, I decided I was like, all right, this is the time I'm going to go deep. Um, and I, you know, I put a lot of focus on just building um, my network here in, in Canada and the startup ecosystem. Uh, learned a lot about SaaS because those were the companies we served. And honestly, it was, it was game changing for me. It really brought that focus in. I felt le like way less chaotic. Um, however, I'm also a very personal, like I'm a very social person. And so uh, what I also did was start saying yes to everything that people would ask me to do. So, but still related. So I, I kind of kept it in buckets. Like I was like, if it's marketing, startup, or helping like students, the next generation, um, if it's in those three buckets, I will say yes. 
And so that's why you see my LinkedIn profile look the way it does now is because I would, you know, volunteer for pitch competitions and to be a judge, I would, uh, I would be a mentor at, you know, in a, in a program. Um, I teach at the college or the university still, I was speaking at the college a lot. Like I do all these things, but it was still within three buckets. Um, mm -hmm. so I would say if you're like me, you're multi-passionate, um, you have a lot of things, it does help to like at least bring it down to maybe three, two to three common areas um, and then try to focus on that. So well, yeah, let's let's talk. <laughs> yeah, let's let's talk a little bit more about the, the startup part of your life, because, well, first of all, I think being 21 and starting your own thing is I would call it a, a quite a young age to um, to take something like that on. I think I mean, let's start with just the emotional part of that, because I think a lot of people have ideas and some of them are fantastic ideas, but we know that ideas aren't really enough. There's a lot of work that um, takes a dream and makes it kind of a reality. I mean, what I'm personally interested from your perspective is once you have an idea and you want to pursue it, there's also this idea of how long you'll pursue it before you feel like you're going to cut bait. And uh, I think that's the, the fear component of, of people that stops them from wanting to pursue these things. Um, at 21, I'm not sure how you thought about that. Um, maybe maybe it was a good thing that you were young and you weren't terribly focused on that, or you're just the type of person who enjoys risk. But yeah, at 21, I had no idea, <laughs> like none. I I could not have even imagined what the journey would look like. And what's interesting too is I didn't realize um, like at 21. I mean, you have to like, keep in mind, like I was living still with my parents at 21. Mm -hmm. uh, my risk factor was, you know, like I could take a lot of risks because I had very little to lose. Like I might've had a computer and maybe some like CDs at the time. Um, you know, you don't have a lot to lose at that point. Uh, so at 21, like I was fearless. I didn't think about the fact that I could fail. I didn't think about the emotional um, side effects. I was working a full-time job, coming back home, working in my business till one or two in the morning, trying to get some sleep and then rinse repeating that for quite some time. So I, I just did it, you know, like I didn't see, you know, at 21, you're full of possibility, right? You're like, but I could do anything. And my parents were great. Like they always taught me that I could do whatever I wanted. I just needed to like focus and, and work hard. Um, and so yeah, at 21, I didn't know. Um, I would say like I grew up through business um, as well. Like when you started a company at 21, you are, you're still learning a lot about the world. And I um, definitely had some growing pains as a result. Um, you know, I was working with all these clients. Sometimes I was, or I was engaging major companies like Disney or Post and really feeling out of my depth. Like I, I grew up in the Ottawa Valley, you know, I grew up in a <laughs> blue collar town, like, very, my family didn't have a lot. And here I was being thrust into all these situations where I was like, is this really happening to me? Like, this is crazy. So I think, um, I think there was some magic in that. Like I, I look back at, at all of those 14 years and think like, wow, that was, that was really incredible. But I also didn't realize the, the toll that it was taking on me over time too. Um, you know, I, I got on this hamster wheel of, of work and success and trying to achieve a certain thing that I thought was like, looked like success. Um, and I had to learn those lessons pretty hard by hitting some, you know, brick walls. Um, and, uh, I've openly talked about this a lot. Like I've hit, hit burnout 
suffered from depression through that phase. Um, like there was a lot, there's a lot that comes with it, a lot of high highs and a lot of low lows. And if you're not, um, necessarily maybe experienced enough yet, like I wasn't, or, uh, you know, you don't have sort of that, uh, real world experience, we'll call it before you move into something like this, I think it's a lot harder. Um, so I think in some ways it's easier because you're not fearful and you're not like mm -hmm. held back, but at the same time, it's harder because you're running so fast that those walls, you hit them and it's detrimental. Who, who did you lean on during those times when you hit a wall and you, you didn't know what to do? Who is the person that you went to, to kind of sort that out? Uh, yeah, I had many, like I had a few, you know, I, I had many people for different reasons. Like I, I had other entrepreneur friends who, um, you know, had been in the trenches who understood it. Um, I would say those conversations were probably the most helpful from a, you know, understanding the business side. The challenge with business is that people don't talk about the hard stuff enough. Like we're getting better. I would say like I went through my, um, major period of burnout, probably like I want to say it was maybe 20. I don't know, 2015, 2016, maybe somewhere in that, that time frame. I'm really bad with dates. <laughs> um, but even in the five years since that happened, I think we're much more open as a society and as a culture. And we talk about things more, but back when I was going through it, like nobody was talking about their hard times and it was still very secretive. And as an entrepreneur, you needed to like, you know, put on this like superhero, like facade and um, so it was really challenging, but I did find a few entrepreneur friends that helped. Um, they were a bit more honest about their own struggles and the things they were going through. Uh, and then I blogged about it on Medium and got probably, I don't even know, 20, 2,500 emails um, from people and DMs on Twitter and things like that uh, from people just saying like, I feel this way too. And I couldn't talk about it. Um, so entrepreneur friends. And then of course my friends and family, you know, stepped up in a really big way. Like my mom, um, and dad, my, my dad moved in to my house for a short time. Uh, my mom moved in shortly thereafter. Um, you know, just to make sure I, like I was taken care of, I was going through a divorce at the time. Like my daughter was little, like there was a lot, there was a lot. And so I think the thing people, people need to realize when they move into a job, like a, a sorry, into a, a business is that it's, it's not always going to be like that. Like, the, like that's not always going to be the outcome, but I think there's a level of preparation that you need to take um, and, a, and, and a support system you need to create around you just in case. Um, I didn't do that as well as I could have, I think. Well, I think as you go through these things, you know, of course, lifestyle changes can change what your goals are and so on, but it seems as though you do have a continual passion for the internet and and I loved your story in the LinkedIn bio about your dad bringing home the the Commodore 64 yeah. which honest to gosh I, I mean a reference like that I was actually surprised at it I was like gosh I haven't heard those words together um yeah. very often I'm certainly of the age that I remember the Commodore 64 yeah um but tell us about that moment because it seems as though you've put it in your LinkedIn bio for a reason and that that kind of sparked something in you that you've maintained throughout your career? Yeah, I would say, and you know, it's funny. I would say like, if you were to ask me like, what are the two moments that changed your entire life? I would say that moment. Um, and then I would also say like the moment we just talked about, which is hitting that wall of burnout and having to reevaluate mm. literally everything. Um, but the Commodore moment, moment. So my dad, um, thankfully um, for me, uh, was 
was really into computers and, and things. So for those that don't know, and it's funny when I give talks and like it's, I'm talking to students especially, and they're all very young. Um, I'll, I'll literally say like, Oh, does anyone know what a Commodore 64 is? And it's like, crickets yeah and then if i go talk to like an association or something the entire room you know it's hands up and i'm like these are my people um so anyway so my dad brought home one day this commodore 64 so it's a computer um i had to hook it up to like my dad's old wooden swivel tv do you remember those oh yeah yeah so <laughs> i actually hooked up this like computer and the floppy disk drive to this um to this tv and I remember like literally just seeing it all light up and I was little, I was maybe six or seven. And, um, and when it all lit up, I was, I was just blown away. I'm like, what is this? And then I remember putting like my first game into the drive and, and it was, I think uh, like, we, we had a lot of games. Thankfully my dad was able to source us a lot, but um, one of my early games was Zach McCracken and the alien mm -hmm. mind menders. And I just remember putting that, that disc in and just being like, this is like, this is magical. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but what was funny about it was I, I loved playing with it, like for all, like with all the normal games and everything. But what I loved more is I have a sister who's a little bit younger than me. And um, she often got, the, I would say, the short end of the stick in terms of some of the games we would play. Um, but we would, we would set up an office in the living room. And of course, I was the CEO. Um, and she was the secretary, which, you know, <laughs> there's probably a whole bunch of things we could unpack there. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we would set up this office and my dad had this tape cassette, um, case that it was like red velvet lined and all the tapes would go inside and I would dump them out and fill that with like my, you know, my paperwork. Um, and I would literally walk around the house as though I were like the CEO of this conglomerate, you know, in, in this house with having no examples. Mm. of like entrepreneurship or you know even white collar work like my parents hadn't um got to that point yet in their own careers and so but i i just that's what i wanted to be i wanted to be the ceo and you know i don't even know what like what the vision was at six or seven but i just remember playing with this computer and um i would say that that set me off uh the rest of my you know my dad always kept computers in the house we got internet in the house as soon as it was like available for people to have. Um, and I remember just like, I, I started an open diary online. Uh, I was like blogging um, before blogging was a thing and just really sharing my whole life and my thoughts and feelings and everything else, but um, really publicly. Um, and I, and I, and that really never stopped. You know, I, when I think about when I fast forward to the company I started, um, it was very reminiscent of, you know, like just staying connected, um, through, through all of these means that we have. So, um, yeah, if it wasn't for my dad doing that, I don't know who knows what I would be today. <laughs> I have no yeah. idea. Yeah. It's, I always, I always find it fascinating, um, when people kind of have a good, strong sense of what they want to do at a young age. Um, I think the, I think that's pretty rare, actually. I think most people struggle a little bit, even when they've been in careers for decades. They there's this sense that maybe there was something else that they were meant to do, and I don't know. Some people might not even ever figure it out. I like your story because um, uh, it's it's kind of it's a, it's a it's a subject that can go a lot of different ways. It's not like you you're you were hardwired that you wanted to be a cop or something like that. You, no. It was it was broad enough for you to kind of go. I want to I want to be in this sector, but it could be any number of things. So that's yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah. And and would would you say that your your industriousness 
do you get that from your parents? Um, this, yeah, 100%. Oh, you know, my parents, my parents are incredible people and, and I didn't appreciate them as much as I, I don't think anyone does when you're really little. Um, I, but I didn't appreciate their own journey enough until I, I was older and, um, could understand it a little bit more, but like my parents had me when they were really young. So 19, um, they, you know, as I mentioned, we're living in a, in a ta small town, not a lot of opportunities in that town. Um, you know, the opportunities that existed were mostly blue collar um, and, you know, mostly things like sawmills and, and whatnot. But my dad um, ended up getting a job as a machinist uh, at Boeing um, and uh, was, you know, sort of like came in into the machine, machine shop. He was really good at that. My mom was a seamstress uh, making uh, winter jackets at a company called Sierra Designs. And, um, and they were both doing, doing this work. But what was interesting was they both never stopped the continual pursuit of learning and, and educating themselves. So my mom actually went back to school. Um, I think she was, I want to say she was maybe late twenties, early thirties. Cause I rem obviously I was old enough to remember, um, this and, and she went back and she got, uh, you know, um, she, I think she studied accounting and business administration or whatever, but anyway, the college that she were, she went to ended up hiring her and she got a really great job there and then started her own career catapult. And now she's um, a manager at the Canadian Nuclear Laboratories, and she's uh, got an incredible, she worked for the senators for a while. Um, so she just ha ended up having this career trajectory that I think not a lot of people would um, end up necessarily pursuing, especially with young children um, and having them so young. And my dad was the same. So my dad got all these like certifications and, and went back to school himself, um, ended up working at Lee Valley Tools as uh, a VP. Um, and then now he's at the Canadian Nuclear Laboratory as well um, and, and makes sure that our reactor doesn't, you know, stop working um, or, or do whatever it's not supposed to do. That This is the area where I, obviously it's not my area of expertise, but, um, but I've watched both of them, you know, uh, pursue this, like just pursue more for themselves. And I think if I just had to boil it down, it doesn't matter if it's like education or, or climbing a corporate ladder or whatever it is just the fact that they never stopped trying to make themselves better, um, I think was probably the most inspiring thing I could have had. And, and the belief they had in my sister and I, you know, and they still have it. Um, they are so proud all the time of even the smallest things. And I think um, that's really important. And I try to do that with my daughter too. You know, like I try to think forward in terms of like, what sort of role model do I want to be for her? Um, and how can I in, infuse in her that same, that same belief? So I think, you know, they were instrumental in, in getting me to where I am today. And, and I think if I, if, yeah, if I didn't have that experience with them, um, I don't know that I'd be as greatly impacted. Well, I was just gonna say, the last thing I'll say is growing up poor as well, um, I think it had a lot to do with it. Uh, I had to work hard you know, for everything I wanted. And when I, when I got to an age where I wanted like the cool clothes that all the other kids had, my parents were like, great, get a job, you know, like <laughs> go out and earn it. Um, and so I think, I think, I, I think that plays an important role. And it also makes it today that I, I don't take anything for granted, like nothing, like everything I have in my life, everything that I, I strive for, um, I never take it for granted because I know what it feels like and, and looks like to live without it. So I think that plays a, a role as well. What was your experience with, with Harvard? 
Oh, yeah. So, okay. So, um, in, in full, like, LinkedIn doesn't do this well, but in full disclosure, like I didn't do a full like degree with Harvard or anything. I've been taking, um, certification courses. Mm -hmm. Um, so I do them online and it's actually like great. It's a, it's an interesting, um, learning, uh, you know, uh, environment. Um, and, and what, what's interesting about this latest one was that I actually signed up for it before the pandemic started. And I was like, oh, this will be great. I'll take a course. I'll be, you know, and then the pandemic hit and all of a sudden I had parent, you know, full-time parenting, homeschooling, job and Harvard. Um, and I just finished, just finished the uh, last week was my last week. So, um, yeah, it, it was exciting. It was a really great course. It was leadership principles. So right in line with what we do at fellow as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, as, as a father of, uh, three I, I think about colleges and um and the cost of them and i i think you can really see that the the educational institutions are really pivoting right now um and this idea of online um schooling and stuff like that is really i i have to imagine that that's something that's going to manifest as we move forward for obvious reasons it seems like it's a real game changer yeah, yeah i hope so and i think i hope it also um levels the playing field in terms of the cost and accessibility yeah. for education because i think that that prohibits a lot of people from getting the education that they want and i think if we can do that um you know like i mean had harvard not had online courses there's no way i would have ever been able to get a certification from harvard like i just wouldn't have been able to do that you know for many reasons logistically and otherwise um so i think you know the world is definitely becoming a bit more are a lot more accessible. And I think, and I'm, I'm honestly so glad that education is going that way. I would just like it not to be for elementary school. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I hear you there. Yeah. Yeah. I've got my, we've got a, a nine-year-old here too. And it's, uh, it's definitely a hands-on thing. My uh, other boys are older, so they're kind of, they can kind of do their own yes. thing, but yeah, I hear you there. I got the t-shirt. Um, uh, so let's move, let's move into, um, you know, your coaching in terms of personal brands and stuff like that. And I, I don't think we can talk about it without acknowledging this, the COVID-19 situation that we're in. Um, how are you, what do you, what is your advice for these um, either personal brands or, or brands in general that are bridging this gap here that we find ourselves in where it might not be the precise time to be selling hard. Um, and yet you want to st stay visible with them because these are the customers that will be um, you know, hopefully you'll be engaging when we open up as this rollout happens. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about what you're what you're doing there and what how you're guiding guiding people and brands in that regard. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you're right. Like this is not a time to go, you know, for the hard sell. It's not that it's not the time to, um, you know, really double down on your numbers. Um, I know a lot of companies are uh, like I'm on this call every week with them, a group of CMOs. And um, all of the CMOs, I would say, have all had to pivot a lot of their metrics. So they're, they're not looking at their KPIs the same way. And a lot of that's changed. And I think for anyone that's sort of in, in a similar situation, this is a perfect time to sort of think about the foundational elements of, of your business, your brand, et cetera. So there's things that you can do now that will reap uh, rewards later. So things like, um, you know, spending some time now developing content, um, you know, writing blog posts, put, putting together white papers, doing a YouTube channel, um, like whatever that looks like. You know, we just launched a podcast yesterday as well at Fellow, um, which is super exciting. Uh, and, you know, we did this at a time when we weren't 
we weren't sure if this was the best time to launch a podcast. Um, but at the same time, it's also a great opportunity to get, you know, in touch with some guests that are otherwise just really busy. Right. So like if I ask people to do things now, it's a lot easy, a lot easier in some ways, more difficult in others. Um, but I think it's, uh, you know, there's a lot more accessibility. And so if you can be doing these things, um, to build, sort of that foundation and build the brand and um, sort of seed some of these things that take a long time, like SEO and, um, you know, getting your content indexed or whatever. If you can do that now, um, when you're ready to sort of ramp back up with sales and things, you'll have people that are there and you've built sort of a community around what you're doing. Uh, the other thing that we're doing is we're doing a lot of things um, that are very value driven and, and free. Uh, but that also help us to build our community and build our lists as well so that when we are ready to sell, uh, we can. Now, as I mentioned, like with fellows specifically, um, it is a tool that's perfect for remote teams. So we're not really seeing necessarily a dip and we're actually able to continue to grow in this time, which I, again, we feel extremely fortunate to be able to do. Um, but we're also still thinking about all the other things that we can be doing, podcast, content, uh, the YouTube channel, Etc. So I think, yeah, if you're, if you're sitting here kind of wondering what to do, focus on some of the basics. Um, you know, take the time now to optimize your website, optimize your funnel. Uh, there's probably things that, that you don't even have in place around automation. Like these, you can do all of this now while we're in a bit more of a quiet time um, and, and do anything you can to provide as much value to people. Like they need it right now. People need support and they need guidance and they, they need help and attention's never been greater. <laughs> right? Like everyone's on these things more, more than we want to admit right now, but it's, it's just the way it is. So, um, I think, yeah, adjust your KPIs, focus on the foundation, uh, really start focusing on some of those thought leadership pieces. And, um, by the time we come out of this, you'll be that much further ahead. Yeah. I think, um, as it relates to building content and creating your own content, I think, I feel like, uh, you know, a few years ago, even there was this idea by brands that um, they wondered about the return on investment um, and they really wondered about the value of it. Now, it seems as though there's been a fundamental shift of late anyway, that this is not an option anymore, that yeah. if you're not actively doing it, you're missing out on a huge opportunity. And even worse, um, you become even more invisible. Um, I think it's daunting because I think people see it as a hamster wheel and they think, well, if I get in, on this content train, I'm never going to be able to get off. There's, you know, it's going to be the kiss of death if I stop. Um, but there still seems to be this little bit of a barrier now. Have you experienced the same thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think people are still really hesitant to put any amount of time and effort into it. Um, what's interesting though, is if I think about like this, I'll go back to the CMO call that I'm on because, you know, obviously these are, these are marketing um, folks in all of the companies you can imagine that are online doing well, like Gong, Drift, et cetera. They're mm -hmm. all on this call. And what's been interesting is listening to them talk about it. They're feeling the same thing, but they're also looking at their overall marketing budgets and they're diverting a lot of the funds that they would have spent on things like in-person events or conferences. And they're actually taking that budget and putting it into things like content. So I think, I think the way that, you know, if, if you're still, if you still have a barrier um, to thinking, you know, how am I going to, to get, to get this started or how am I not going to fall off the hamster wheel? Um, I think you just have to understand that it's a lot, the most long-term game you have with the most amount of benefits. Um, because the, the content that you produce today 
will pay off in spades forever. It literally will. It'll be on Google forever. It'll be indexed. Um, and uh, the nice thing is, is that even if you get to a point where all of a sudden you do feel like you have to stop, you can take all of your old content and start to repurpose it. Um, right. So, you know, you can take podcast episodes, get them transcribed, turn the transcripts into an ebook. Um, you could gather up six of your most related blog posts, turn that into a guide that people could download, um, start speaking any of your blog posts and turn that into an audio podcast. Um, you know, like there's so many things you can do that you don't necessarily need to be creating new all the time. Uh, you can also repurpose a lot of what you have and think channels too. Like let's say, you know, pre COVID and pre quarantine, you were too busy to focus on certain channels. Maybe you left Instagram, you know, to die a little on the vine or, um, you weren't act as active on Twitter. Like this is also a great time to be networking online, building that community, um, and repurposing the content you have for those channels too. So I think there's a lot you can do, even if it starts to feel like you're running out of steam a little bit. I think on the, maybe the other side of that conversation is, um, if we can all agree that saying nothing is not a good idea, mm -hmm. um, what's, what's too far on saying too much? Because I do sense that sometimes, um, even, even some of the people and brands that I follow, I do sometimes get this bit of fatigue that happens when I feel like it's too frequent. And I know that's always sort of a balance that, that everyone's trying to strike is what value can I bring um, in a timely manner that is not annoying? Yeah, yeah, I know you're right. And I think it honestly, it depends on a number of factors. Like I think it depends a lot on channel um, for sure. Like, you know, for example, on Twitter, you could get away with doing five to seven tweets a day and it wouldn't even register as a blip on a radar because everything in the feed is moving so fast. Um, on Instagram, you know, um, with the algorithm changes, even still, not all of your photos are going to get seen, but um, stories is a prime example of where you can go overboard. Um, so if, you know, if anyone follows stories, you'll know that if you open someone's story and they have like, instead of like, you know, dashes that are this long, the dashes are this long, <laughs> yeah, that's right. you, you're like, uh, okay, that's a lot of stories. I can't watch all of those. Um, so I think like it really is channel dependent, um, you know, in terms of creating things like for a blog, let's say, I think, you know, um, I, I like to take the rule of only blog when you have something important to say. Um, that's my rule. A lot of other people are like, make sure you're blogging two to three times a week, you know, for that like SEO juice. I think as a business, it's a good idea to like maybe get into that cadence, but for a personal brand, um, I only blog if I have something really cool or really interesting or really helpful to share. That's it. I don't force it. I don't push it. Um, and I'm, I'm actually very similar from a personal brand perspective across all my channels. Like I'm not, I'm not scripted. I'm not forced um, on any of them. And I, I tweet when I have something to say. I Instagram when something cool is happening. Mm -hmm. uh, and lately I've been TikToking when I have something funny that goes on in my life. Um, but from business, I think, uh, yeah, know your channel, know what feels right. And, and, the, and as soon as you feel people disengaging or unfollowing or whatever, you probably know you've gone too far. So maybe just reel it back a little um, and try, try a different um, cadence. But. I think there's been a big pushback on on this idea that people don't read, I th and and um, I think I think there's still some people who believe that oh gosh you know people don't read anymore it's too much uh, too time consuming for them or um, it's not as engaging as video content. 
Um, but um, I, I'm still a firm believer that um, people are still reading and that they don't have, you know, it doesn't have to be in two minute bites too. You can still have something that's engaging enough for them to do. Again, I'll go back to the balance of this. Do you, do you think that brands that don't invest in a solid blog where you're actually writing the content are, are missing out? Is it, I guess we'll go back to, if we look at traditional media, we're always looking for a mix. Um, no different with digital media or, or content either. So um, would you say that you are like adding a written blog like once a month? I know that you're saying that you you want something to say, but on average, would you say that it's less than the other content you're putting out? Yeah, so so I guess I'll split these into two. So I've got my own personal brand website. Um, I, I don't put as much focus into that anymore. So what I'll usually do is if I'm on a podcast or you know something gets shared, I'll create a blog post around that and, and to share you know the the episode that I was a part of or whatever. Um, so I'm a little less intentional on my personal brand um, blog these days. Um, and then like when so in that in that case, like I'm only ever blogging if I have something to share on my personal brand. For Fellow, um, if I look at that as a business brand, um, we purposely try to develop um, at least, I would say we're on average about three blog, um, blog posts per week is where we land. And that's just because it's, you know, it's a cadence that we figured out makes sense for us. Each of the blog posts are slightly different in terms of their, their focus and who it's really in, you know, sort of intended for. Um, we try to hit that goal all the time. And the reason is, is because if, if we're not doing long form content like that, we're missing out on like the SEO benefits of that. Every single time we post an article and in, within the article are you know, keywords that people will be searching for, um, we, if we don't have that, we, we're, our, like our website's not going to grow, um, our page views won't grow, and as a SaaS company, you know, we need a lot of traffic coming to the site in order to actually obviously get um, users. And so for us, it's, it's, it has to be there. Like we need to do it. Um, but at the same time, uh, so you'll see us do like two to three, sometimes even four blog posts per week on the business brand. And then um, across our other channels, like on YouTube, for example, we'll do a video, one video a week versus multiple. Um, and we're creating content often for, you know, all of our social platforms as well. That's more short form. Um, and we usually repurpose a lot of our blog posts for that. Um, and then we also do things like we write white papers. So we've got two eBooks that we have, um, focused on managers and individual contributors. Um, and those are great because like if someone really wants to dive in further, like they can, um, and really learn, uh, go deep on it, on that subject. But the blog posts are honestly, like if I look at, um, you know, our stats, our blog posts are long form. Like they're very long. If you're reading them, you're going to learn something because we've done a lot of research. We've done, we put a lot of time into that piece of writing um, and people read them. Like people, like the, like our blog posts are, I would say our most consumed content. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you're not doing it as a brand, what you're not doing is you're not establishing your own thought, thought leadership in that area. You're not providing that expertise. But more importantly, you're not providing the value that your customers are coming to you for, even if it's the value that isn't super specific. You know, like for example, obviously like we would love people to try Fellow, um, the tool, and try it with their meetings. Uh, and that's the goal. But ultimately, we also want to just help leaders and managers become better leaders and managers. And so we do that through our, our content and our blog. So I think if you're a business brand and you're not doing it, 
Um, you're missing out on SEO benefits. You're missing out on thought leadership. You're missing out on providing enormous amounts of value to your user base. And yeah, like all of those things. So I'm a huge believer in it. Like I think it's, uh, and it persists really long-term. It's not the flash in the pan today. It's, it will persist, especially if you write evergreen content. Amazing. Um, uh, I got a couple more questions for you uh, that I want to get in before our time is up. Um, You did a TED talk and I think we all, first of all, I think everybody agrees that it's an amazing platform and, um, and, uh, we see the final product, but give us a little behind the scenes of what it's like to speak uh, at TED and yeah. what's involved. Cause um, I know I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. Yeah. So I was really fortunate to be able to speak at a TEDx youth event, um, which again, if you go back to the, our, the early part of our conversation, um, speaking to like the next generation is, is really exciting for me. So when the opportunity um, came up, I was super excited, as you can imagine, and also terrified um, because, you know, the brand TEDx is definitely, and TED is, is, a, is a really prestigious brand. And so um, behind the scenes, there's a lot that, that goes on. So when you first decide that, okay, yes, I'm going to do this. And I was very fortunate. Some, some TEDx events, um, you have to apply to, to be a speaker. Um, this particular one reached out to me. So in one way, it was, it was nice because it was sort of thrust upon me. I didn't have to think about it and panic and audition and whatever. And on the same, the same time, I wasn't ready, right? Like it, was, it sort of just popped up. And so what I did uh, for me is I, I spent a lot of time working with um, a, a few mentors that I have in my, in my circle um, to come up with a really compelling uh, topic. Um, for me, because I had always followed this really non-traditional path through life and made decisions that often fall outside of like societal norms. Um, because of that, like I was like, I want that to be my TEDx uh, topic um, and really this idea of following an uncharted path. And so I came, I, I landed on the subject and then I worked with uh, mentors to figure out, you know, how, like what needs to be in that story. You only have 15 minutes or 15. Yeah, I think it's 15 minutes. Um, you only have 15 minutes. So you have to really drive home you know, the whole thing you want to share and you need to make it really valuable for the audience um, because it's really not about you, you know, realistically when you're on, on, when you're speaking. Um, And so I worked really uh, like quite a bit with them to to hone in that message. Uh, And then, and then I built my own slides. Like I, I wanted to really be intimately familiar. So I built these slides that had like these um, bright, uh, really funny, not funny, um, surprising photos. So, you know, I was talking uh, in a section about like childhood and I so I had this like kid wearing this giant rabbit head, you know, he was holding like his teddy bear and like just like weird things that would get people to be like, Oh, cause I wanted to keep them in their bodies, you know? Um, so yeah. And then rehearsed a lot in front of everybody. Like my family was starting to get really annoyed because <laughs> they heard my Ted, my TEDx talk like more times than I care to admit. Um, I would do things like this. Like I would jump on with a, you know, video and, and talk it through. I would record myself, um, watch it back, make changes, edit all the way up to the day. Um, and then, yeah. And then you show up and, and it's, uh, you have a rehearsal and you go through that and then they fill the, the audience, like they, they fill the, the theater with people. And then you have to get on stage on the, the red carpet and, and deliver it. Um, and so what, what's interesting though, is it's actually kind of sad. So my, um, TEDx event, because it was youth, a TEDx youth event, 
it's run by youth. Like uh, that's why they have TEDx youth um, events. And so this particular chapter, uh, the whole thing was student run. And um, the, it turns out that the videos, uh, they, something happened in production and I don't have a video of it. Oh. And it never went like, and therefore, because there was no videos, it's like not on TEDx website. And so I'm like, now I need to do it again because like I need the video. Um, but I still loved the experience and I felt really bad for the students because they had all of the speakers, right? That, that never got their videos afterward. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure they got some probably angry emails, but um, you know, I mean, I just, I looked at it as like, you know, uh, still the experience was still all worth it video or not <laughs> amazing yeah. yeah well um listen I'm, I'm gonna wrap it up there I, um it's been great talking to you i, I found like a, a, an amazing amount of insight that you've provided today so i want to thank you for coming on and doing that and um and uh, yeah i wish you luck and hopefully ted does uh, call you back and uh, we can get um we can get some more of this on that amazing platform for sure i, I will say yes if they call so <laughs> yeah <laughs> Okay, Erin. Well, thanks a lot. Really appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. This has been great. This episode has been brought to you by the National Advertising Challenge, North America's only brief-based challenge that sends winners to Cannes, France.